God chose to love her when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose to love her when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose to love her. Chose to love her. God chose to love her. Chose to love her. God chose to love her. Boom, five. God chose to love her when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose to love her when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose to love her. Chose to love her. God chose to love her. Chose to love her. God chose to love her. Boom, five. Good morning, everybody. My voice is kind of back. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. My voice is kind of back, guys. This is episode number three in this series we're calling Prophetic. All about prophecy, all about the gift of prophecy, the role of prophet in the Bible. Episode one, we talked about how, <clears throat> well, what prophecy really is and the logistics behind the delivery, right? Episode two, we talked about the New Testament, um, what a prophet is, and we talked about um, how I believe, okay, that the New Testament actually speaks to the fact that uh, prophecy and the role of prophet will be active until um, the coming of Jesus, until we're perfect, perfectly sanctified, um, resurrected to new glorified bodies, all that good stuff, that prophecy and, and the role of prophet uh, contrary to a lot of people's opinion, uh, is actually still active. I think I proved that. Um, at least, at least I showed why I believe that. So I'm not without biblical evidence. I don't, I'm not without support from the scripture. Um, and so today we're going to talk about this concept. Okay. Cause, cause I'm working from the premise that, um, the gift of prophecy and prophets are still active. Okay. I'm working on that premise. Um, therefore the question becomes when we survey the scriptures and, uh, in the new covenant, does the gift of prophecy, um, become something that is, uh, developed? Has that always been something that God has done? Is that the, the prophecy, um, the gift of prophecy that he gives to an individual or the role of prophet? Do they grow up in that? Are they trained in that? Is the gift developed? Is the gift given in its full, complete, perfect form not to be developed? Okay, so we'll talk about that. Um, I am not in any way supporting or endorsing anyone's school of prophets. I'm not, I'm making this up front. This is like a disclaimer because someone's going to see the thumbnail and go, oh, he endorses blah, blah, blah. He endorses what they say. I'm not endorsing any school. I'm not endorsing any, uh, I don't know, prophecy curriculum or workshop or any prophecy classes that are out there, okay? I'm not. Uh, all we're doing is we're looking at the scripture and going, does the Bible teach that this is a valid thing? 
We're not questioning the methodology and, and how are they doing it and what are they teaching prophecy is. That's not what we're addressing. We're just addressing, is there a category in scripture for prophecy to be developed, to be developed and trained? Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, that's the general idea. And then after we talk about that, we're going to survey the Old Testament and we're going to do a, a general overview of prophecy in the Old Testament, not visions, not dreams. That is for tomorrow's episode and the episode uh, next week. Okay, visions and dreams will come at different episodes. Today, we're just looking at prophetic words and what prophecy looks like, apart from visions and dreams, what prophecy looked like in the Old Testament and try and find some um, commonality between all these different things, okay? So, one thing I failed to do yesterday, well, at least, I think I did an okay job, pretty average, is um, I talked about how uh, there's a quote that I pulled from, it was gotquestions.org. They talked about how I believe in 2 Timothy chapter 1, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it warns of false prophets. Eh, I forget where it is. But either way, the argument they put forth was Peter, or maybe it was Peter. Yeah, I think it was Peter. Um, Peter Paul, that they're switching out uh, prophets with teachers in their writings. And I said, I don't think so. Um, because Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, Jesus talks about how there will be false prophets in the end. Uh, that doesn't delegitimize the prophetic role entirely. That's just to say false ones will arise, which means there have to, has to be genuine ones who are still active in the end days. Depending on how you read Matthew 24, I read it as having mostly been fulfilled in AD 70 with Rome. Um, but no matter what, Jesus is prophetically declaring uh, toward the end or in the future, false prophets will be arising. He talks about how false Christs will arise. Um, in verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great wonders to lead people astray. I don't think that changes. I think what Jesus is declaring is what will be true uh, of human history until he's, his second return. Not just a season, but leading up to the second coming, there will still be false prophets, which means there has to be legitimate, real ones. Otherwise, we could just go like, well, they're, they're fake just by the fact that they're claiming to be a prophet because prophets aren't in existence anymore. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus says. Um, so I wanted to clarify that because I didn't really do a good job. Um, I just wanted to add to that. So the question that I don't think many people have asked is, if prophecy is still active, where's their biblical evidence or support for the idea that the gift or the prophetic role is something that you grow up in or develop? Um, and I would say, I don't think there's any explicit text, okay? But I will say this, as we addressed Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 13, um, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers, and apostles, the fivefold ministry in Ephesians chapter 4, um, paired with 1 Corinthians 13, seems like that is still active till the second coming of Jesus, okay? So those are the five uh, equipping roles, or the roles that God has given his church to build up the rest of the people, Okay, with that in mind, um, we, no one's in, 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 in disagreement that teachers and shepherds and evangelists can be trained up. Okay, uh, there's seminary you can go to. 
There's college you can go to. There's Christian college to learn uh, the gift of, or develop the gift of preaching and the ability to communicate. Um, there's, there's classes you can take to learn how to shepherd people. And that, does, that doesn't mean it's to the exclusion of experience, but there's education. Um, there are actual conferences and classes and seminaries and workshops you can go to to develop um, the gift, or not, not gain the gift, but develop the gift you already have of shepherding, of evangelizing, of, of teaching, of preaching, okay? So um, you can grow in pastoring people. You can grow in teaching. And there's not necessarily any biblical text that tells us the methodology of training or developing teaching, preaching, pastoring, or evangelizing. There's examples. There's general statements. There's general wisdom we can glean. But there's no biblical... Um, uh, what's the word? Oh, I can't think of the word. Come on, brain. There's no biblical text throughout scripture uh, or any systematic theology that you can develop that gives you, hey, here's how you train the gift of shepherding, or here's how you train the gift of preaching, or here's how you train the gift of teaching. Um, th there's no one text or even group of texts that you can put together a system and go, well, here's how Paul trained Timothy. Or here's how Peter and the apostles were trained up. Yes, they followed Jesus. Yes, Jesus modeled good, solid biblical preaching. Yes, he trained them. Yes, he taught them. But at the end of the day, how do you develop the gift of being able to articulate the gospel or evangelizing, approaching people and knowing how to deal with people one-on-one -on -one or in group scenarios? There, there's, there are things modeled in scripture, okay, that I think we glean from and we put together classes and seminaries and college courses and conferences where we go, we're going to teach you how to communicate the gospel, how to outline a sermon, how to develop the main point of a biblical text, put that together and deliver that point for point with a metaphor, with a story that illustrates it. We're going to teach you how to do these things. And again, there's no biblical text or passage that gives us the methodology or the systematic theology for doing these things for pastoring, for preaching, for leadership, even the gift of leadership. Yet we have all these man-made classes on developing these gifts. And I don't think anyone's saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? Obviously, we believe that different roles and gifts can be developed and grown into, okay? And the fact that they have to be developed, the fact they have to be developed is not an indication that it's not a real gift, in other words, we're not going to pastoral conferences looking at all those pastors and going, well, the very fact that you have to be here to learn how to do it is proof it's you don't really have the gift. We're not doing that. We're not going to, to seminary classes, jumping into the class and being like, hey, teacher, can you shut it for a second? Let me make this prophetic statement. All of you that are in here, the fact that you have to learn how to preach and learn how to communicate the scriptures and learn a hermeneutic is proof that you don't have the gift of preaching or teaching. No, no one's doing that. So a lot of people would agree that yes, you can teach, you can preach, you can shepherd, you can grow in that role, you can learn, you can go to workshops and, and there's training you can receive and yet they'll turn around, okay? And if they believe the prophetic role is still instituted, they'll say, yeah, but prophecy is not one of those things that can be developed. Uh, the prophetic role is not something you, you grow up in. You're either handed it on a silver platter in the Old Testament as a prophet or you're not. 
The question becomes, well, Ephesians 4 gives us the fivefold ministry and there's no delineation between which gifts can be trained and which gifts cannot be trained. There's just that fivefold list. Shepherds, evangelists, teachers, um, apostles, and prophets, okay? So why are we not consistently holding prophecy to the same standard and having the same mentality that we have towards the other gifts that we believe can be trained up? That's my question. Why is there an inconsistency? Like apart from giving you biblical texts, I just want to think logically. Why don't we hold prophecy to that same standard? What's unique? Where's the biblical support and evidence to say that prophecy is going to be treated differently than the other gifts like teaching or shepherding or pastoring or evangelizing or leadership? Where is the biblical text that gives us the clear delineation between a trainable gift and a non-trainable gift? So what we're asking, okay, is let's just say someone has the gift of prophecy and they're, they're gifted prophetically. They have a natural affinity for the prophetic. Um, can that gifting be developed or trained? If you say no, okay, if you say no, my question for you is what, what is the biblical reasoning for your answer? How did you biblically come to that conclusion? Not based off experience, not based off your favorite teacher and what they say about the gifts, not based on how you've interacted with the gifts. Where's your biblical text that delineates between certain gifts and roles that can be developed and trained and some that aren't and some that can't. So when I think of prophecy and we answer, we ask the question, is that something that someone grows up in? Does a prophet grow in their ability to recognize the voice of the Lord? Can a prophet grow and their ability to discern a word of God and communicate that word. I think 1 Samuel chapter 3, just thinking about Samuel and the fact that he never heard the voice of the Lord, okay? And we know the story. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli couldn't see. Samuel's laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord calls to Samuel, And he goes, here I am. He thinks it's Eli. Runs to Eli. Eli goes, lay down. The Lord calls again to Samuel. Samuel, Eli, what? What do you want, Eli? Eli goes, go lay down. Verse 7 says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. I think that's a very important uh, commentary statement that we need to evaluate. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, the biblical author does not say that Samuel did not yet know the voice of the Lord. That's assumed within the statement. That's obvious. But it says he did not know the Lord, which the knowing is relational. It's familiar. It's to grow in intimacy. It's that one-on-one, I know the heart and the character and the personhood of God. Samuel did not yet know him on a personal, intimate level. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him as the word of the Lord. Now God is speaking to him, but it has not been revealed to Samuel that this is indeed the Lord speaking. Paired with that is the statement, he does not yet know the Lord, which you would say, assumed within that, is he does not recognize the voice of God 
and know God's talking to him because he doesn't yet know the Lord. So there is a connection between knowing God and recognizing his voice. And I think that's clear throughout the scriptures too. I don't think I have to spend too much time proving that. I think we'd all agree. Ephesians talks about understanding the will of the Lord and discerning the Lord. Romans 12 talks about having our minds renewed to recognize what is good, pleasing, and, and the will of God, essentially. And in any given situation, how do I know what God is asking me to do? Well, part of that includes knowing his voice. John 10, the sheep don't know the voice of the stranger. They know the voice of the good shepherd. And the Lord called Samuel again, third time. He arose and went to Eli. And he said, here I am for you called me. Eli perceives, or it's revealed to Eli, he understands that God is calling Samuel. Therefore Samuel, or Eli says to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, say this, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. This time Samuel's ready. Per the instruction of Eli, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times. I don't think this means that now the Lord is standing before him, but previously he wasn't. The way he was calling at other times, in, a, in an actual presence way where he stood with Samuel, that seems to be the same way he's calling to Samuel again the fourth time. Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So, guess what? Samuel learned how to recognize the voice of God. He didn't, hear it the, he didn't recognize it the first three times. The fourth time, Eli instructs him, That's God speaking, so let him know you're listening. Samuel does that. First time he actually engages and interacts with God on a one-on-one -on -one kind of basis, kind of like we're supposed to look back and say, wow, this sounds like Moses. Samuel is like kind of a lesser version of Moses. He's not a covenant mediator, but Samuel's definitely a prophet on that level. <clears throat> and then God will go on to give a prophecy to Samuel. And here's um, what it says about Samuel in verse 19. Samuel grew, and that's important. It's not just talking about stature and physical maturity. Watch. Here's Samuel's growth that the author's really focusing in on. Here's the dimension of growth and maturity that the author's really honing in on. And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel growing is not just in stature and physical maturity, is actually referring to his ability as a prophet, that the Lord did not let any of his words fall to the ground. The Lord was with him. That became abundantly clear over time as prophecy after prophecy was confirmed and validated and came true and God backed Samuel. Samuel progressively became known and established as a true prophet of the Lord. He grew in reputation. He grew in his ability as a prophet, it seems like, that the Lord did not let any of his words fall to the ground. Now, maybe you would say, okay, it doesn't say that he grew in his prophetic gifting and ability and role, okay? But look at verse 20. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That happened over time. 
And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So Samuel, as a young boy, grows up to be this established prophet, happens over time. I don't think that just refers to reputation, okay? Especially when you consider the narrative letting us know Samuel didn't recognize the voice of God because he wasn't yet familiar with, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, the heart and the character of the God he served. Maybe he had the knowledge. Maybe Eli instructed him as a priest. He was instructed in Torah, right? That's something we can assume. But to actually know God the way a husband knows a wife, to actually know God, that's something Samuel did not yet have going for him until, okay, until this encounter with God. So it seems to be something that is developed. Um, and I know I'm not going to build a case on this one text. I just want you to see that the way God works with Samuel seems to be over time. So I don't think we can say, okay, for sure that Samuel's gift and discernment grew over time. But we can't say it didn't either. Okay, so I know it's not much. But let me take you to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah is called as a young prophet as well. He's not old. He's a young fella. Okay. This is God calling Jeremiah. And he goes, I appointed you a prophet to the nations uh, <clears throat> before I formed you in the womb. So here's what happens. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah for the first time in like an instructive, visionary kind of manner. This is the first time it seems that Jeremiah actually has a prophetic vision. Prior to this, it just says the word of the Lord came to me saying, it was an auditory thing. Okay, this time what's about to happen is Jeremiah is about to receive a vision. Watch how God almost coaches Jeremiah through this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well. I'm watching over my word to perform it. Do you know what God doesn't do in this scenario? He doesn't fully explain, at least Jeremiah doesn't record the details of it, okay? But Jeremiah does not record that God gave him the details or the explanation of the vision or the interpretation or the meaning. Just that the Lord seems to be going, hey, Jeremiah, here's a vision of an almond branch. And then he goes, Jeremiah, what do you see? I see an almond branch. Cool. You've seen well. I'm watching over my word to perform it. Look at the second time. We don't know how much time elapses between the first and second vision between verse 12 and 13. It just says the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Okay. We don't know how many, how long has passed between 12 and 13. Um, it could be immediate. It could be right after. Okay. John says, whoever John Whitworth is, I don't know if he's a trustworthy source. <clears throat> he says Hebrew wordplay there. The almonds have a word connection with watching and eyes. Okay. So <clears throat> maybe that is um, the full scope of what God wants Jeremiah to know about this vision is almond branch linked to vision. I'm watching over my word to perform it still seems a little discreet and not as <clears throat> knowable as, as, as God could have revealed it. 
God could have re revealed more detail, but instead he just tells Jeremiah, I'm watching over my word to perform it, which could be likened to an almond branch growing or almonds being related to eyes, the word connection there, if, if indeed this John source is you know, valid. But look at verse 13. There seems to be progression and clarity, um, or at least uh, almost a development of, of detail and interpretation. First time, Jeremiah just sees something and God states, hey, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Verse 13, second vision. The word of the Lord came to me a second time. And God says, what do you see? I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, and look at the incredible detail that God gives Jeremiah, the second vision. And again, this seems to be progressive. This seems to be unfolding. Uh, we don't know how long. We don't know how much time has elapsed between verse 12 and 13. But the Lord says, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. And so the first vision, okay, is connected to the second. God is watching over his word to perform it. What God is telling Jeremiah, he's ensuring it's going to happen. God is guaranteeing sovereignly and overseeing the fulfillment of that word. It's going to happen. Uh, disaster will come on all the inhabitants of the land, you know, land of Israel for judgment, for their sin. Behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. Every one of them shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They've made offerings to their gods and they've worshiped the work of their hands. Now here's the application for Jeremiah, but you dress yourself for work, arise, say to them everything I command you, don't be dismayed or I'll dismay you before them. In other words, don't be scared of them or I'll give you something to be afraid of. And I behold, make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall against the whole land, bronze walls against the land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you for I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. So that is what is kind of clarified here in the second vision. So the first vision, there's enough information for Jeremiah to go, cool, I, I understand what you said as it connects to the vision you showed me of the almond branch. Here, God clarifies even more what he meant in the first vision as it relates to the second. So with the second vision, not only comes an expansive view of the overall prophetic word, but more details and more clarity about what God is doing and what he meant when he said, I'm watching over it to perform it. So there seems to be, okay, in, in, at least in the prophetic role of Jeremiah in his life, there seems to be this God growing that, developing that, whatever you want to call it, because the first vision, not so much detail, not so much clarification, but enough for Jeremiah to go, this is the word of the Lord, second time, much more. And as you go on in the life of Jeremiah, okay, Jeremiah is going to get even more specific detail for specific scenarios based on the people he's talking to or the people God has called him to, to you know, speak judgment against or, hey, your cousin's going to come with the deed to his, his land. He's going to say, come and purchase the right of redemption, that kind of specific. So in other words, with, the, with the, the, the life of Jeremiah and his prophetic role, there is biblical uh, support for the idea that his, <clears throat> not, I wouldn't say gifting, but maybe his ability 
and role seems to develop over the course of his life. Um, but it starts off as an almond branch, which maybe you'd liken um, the almond branch itself, uh, which would blossom and bloom to the actual prophetic um, role of Jeremiah, how that's in development as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. And again, I'm not building an entire case on this. I'm just stating what's what's here um, and saying, hey, maybe maybe there is. I'm not entirely sure yet, okay? But maybe there is biblical support for the idea that um, the gift of prophecy is something that is uh, trained, developed, you grow up in. Um, Hebrews 5.14, it talks about how discernment needs to be trained. Um, and this isn't a new concept. This seems to be littered all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs. Solid food is for the mature, uh, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. How? How, how are, are, are our discernments trained? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, it's on the part. This isn't the only way to train discernment, but the way that the author of Hebrews is calling it out to say, look, you guys should be farther along by now. You should be able to handle solid food, but you're living off milk. You don't even understand the elementary basics. Part of his explanation of that is saying discernment can be trained. Y'all's is not. And here's one of the ways discernment is trained by constant conscious practice of distinguishing good from evil. That means there has to be an awareness and a sober mind and a conscious effort on the part of the person who's desiring to have trained discernment. That includes the word of the Lord. That includes the scriptures sanctifying and training us to recognize what is good from evil, but also having a mind that is renewed day by day through the word of God where we sit in the presence of God too in prayer and we experience more of who God is. So discernment is not only trained in this manner, right? But discernment is trained in this manner. And it's interesting to me. Okay, so biblically, whether or not you have the gift of prophecy or whether or not you believe that the prophetic role is still in existence and active, everyone can train their discernments. Everyone can have their discernment trained to what? Well, to distinguish good from evil, right? To recognize when wisdom is crying out in the streets and where wisdom is crying out from versus Lady Folly who's trying to lure you into sin, right? But also, John 10.10, 10, the, the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. They do not know the voice of strangers. If they hear a stranger calling, they go, sorry, weirdo, don't want anything to do with you. They know it's a stranger. They're not familiar. They'll stay, stay away. So, biblically, Regardless of the prophetic, discernment can be trained to recognize the voice of God, to distinguish good from evil, okay? There's also this interesting, I'm going to go through quite a few scriptures now <laughs> on this concept based on the, depending on the translation you're reading, ESV, NASB, NIV, KJV, my translation translates these people this class of people as the sons of the prophets. Sons of the prophets. I'm not sure which translation does, but I've heard. I probably should have looked this up. Let me look it up real quick. Some translations use school of prophets. Now we can look at the Hebrew to figure out which one is truly um, for Samuel 19. 
We'll look at that. Okay. I'm going to make sure I write this down. Whether it's translated school of prophets or sons of prophets, they're all throughout the Old Testament. 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, Ezra. Okay. They, it's like they pop up during the time of Saul and, and Samuel. What's interesting, okay, and I wonder if this is a coincidence or not, is Samuel seems to be almost like um, after Moses, the prophetic voice seems to die down a bit. Joshua takes over in terms of leading the people, but he's not as much of a prophetic voice as Moses was. Okay, instructing of the people, getting the laws of God, declaring the word of the Lord. Joshua's a leader. He's a conqueror. He's a, he's a military campaign leader, right? He knows how to win battles. He knows how to lead people into victory. And he also has interactions with God, but he seems to be, at least compared to Moses, kind of a, a step below. So the prophetic voice from Moses down through the judges seems to die down a bit. And then God gives judges, which, you know, are likened more to Joshua rather than Moses. Like they're like military campaign leaders too. They're like warriors. They're like people who will win the war to bring Israel back up to the top. They're like uh, heroes of the faith that God sends in as an answer to the prayers of the nation of Israel. But the voice of a prophet seems to die down a bit. It doesn't mean they're not present. There are pro There's a evidence of at least a couple prophets and judges. But the prophetic role in terms of like Moses, from Moses dying down to 1 Samuel seems to fade quite a bit, quite a bit. But then Samuel picks it up as if to be like, not the next Moses as a covenant mediator, but like a next prophetic voice. Like, whoa, this guy prophetically, as a, as a mouthpiece of God, he's on par with Moses. This Samuel, seem, he's like likened, he's uh, you know called one of the greater prophets. So Samuel, it's interesting that with the rise of Samuel, almost like um, bringing the prophetic voice up a little bit, not back from the dead as if it was dead entirely, but to almost like resurrect that prophetic voice with Samuel being established as a prophet, you see the sons of the prophets kind of arising with him. And so you wonder if that's a coincidence. I don't think so. I think Samuel being the prophetic voice he was, God not letting a single one of his words fall to the ground has something to do with other prophets being trained up under the training and, and guiding of Samuel, who's an established prophet. Now you're going to see the sons of the prophets or school of prophets. The Hebrew here is when it says sons of, it just means to be the member of those belonging to a specific order or class or um, the, those belonging to the prophetic order. So I don't think we can insinuate and read into that idea. Oh, they went to like a school and a seminary where they sat in a classroom and Samuel's like, okay, now guys, let's listen to God for a second. I don't think we can read that into this idea, but it's at least a class and an order of people, the sons of the prophets. Now you have to ask yourself, if God already has like some strong prophetic established voices, why these supplementary prophets alongside? 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to go through this, and we're just going to talk about it. We're just going to talk about the fact that in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, at least 15 biblical passages, 
we see the sons of the prophets spring up seemingly overnight alongside Samuel. They really pop up in chapter 10, right? When Samuel's already an established prophet. And you're like, where'd the sons of the prophets come from? Right? And then they kind of fade with the prophetic silence that takes place after Malachi. <clears throat> There's 400 years of at least unrecorded prophetic um, utterance. Okay? We don't have anything recorded from Malachi. John the Baptist picks it up as one of the first, like, you know, prophetic voices, are the last of that prophetic voice that says, he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist is, seems to be the last of that, but there's a big gap between Malachi and John the Baptist. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. We're just going to look at this. We're not trying to develop any un unprecedented theology that's not biblical we're just trying to look at the text and, and, and build something that the text gives us to work with. The sons of the prophets uh, said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. So we have Elisha as an established prophet who took over the prophetic mantle of Elijah. I know a lot of this terminology is often linked to hypercharismania. So I understand if there's hesitancy but the, the, the truth of the matter is, Elijah, the spirit that was on Elijah, the mantle prophetically was passed down to Elisha. And now, under his charge are the sons of the prophets. Now, are these just like secretaries? Are these like little minions that just do the bidding of Elisha and help make his life easier? What's going on here? Well, they dwell with Elisha, sort of like a rabbi-student kind of relationship where Jesus and his disciples, everywhere he went, the disciples went, seems to be the idea. You have the sons of the prophets following Elisha, living with Elisha, under the charge of Elisha. And they're going, look, this place is too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan and each of, their, uh, and each of us get there a log and we can make a place for us to dwell there. So this includes Elisha. Okay, this includes Elisha. And he answered, go. Uh, one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will. I will. So they're going, just, just so we're clear, we're, we're asking you to go with us. He goes, okay, I'll go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees as one was felling a log. I don't know if that's, when was the last time you used the word felling? <laughs> as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. Ah, oh, bummer. He cried out, alas, my master. That's the language Elisha used of Elijah. He referred to Elijah as his master. Not in an oppressive, burdensome, slavery sense, but in a you have charge over me. And I've entrusted myself to you, to your care and leadership. It was borrowed. And they're going, you borrowed an axe head, my guy. Then the man of God said, by the way, man of God being Elisha the prophet, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha, I don't know if God revealed this to him or Elisha's like, this will work, this will work, physics. But he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. So maybe not physics, maybe some unknown spiritual physics that Elisha was like, yes, trust me guys, I know what I'm doing. Throws a stick in, attracts the iron head, floats it up and he goes, take it up, walks away. <coughs> reached out his hand and took it. What a weird scenario. Well, 
not only do we see the, the relationship between sons of the prophets and those who are have charge okay, over um, the sons of the prophets, Elisha, but we also see, um, I think in this, we see a prophetic image of ultimately what Jesus will do for his people. And I've spent some time talking about this in the past episodes, but I just wanted to show you that. Now I'm going to back it up all the way to 1 Samuel, okay? For Samuel 10, Saul comes to Samuel and Samuel tells Saul what to do. Hey, <clears throat> um, where is it? When you depart from me today, he's talking to Saul, the one who's about to be the king, man's choice. You'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb and they'll say to you, the donkeys you went to look for, they're found by your father. Uh, your father has ceased to care about them and he's anxious about you, saying, what do I do about my son? Okay. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. That's also, I think, prophetic and symbolic. They will greet you, <clears throat> accept it from their hands. After that, come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, okay, by the way, Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, who's going to be there? Well, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets. Uh, Gibeath Elohim. I don't know if it's Philistine territory or if Philistines have kind of taken up uh, some residency there among the Israelites. <clears throat> Just says there's a garrison of the Philistines there. That would be interesting if this was actual Philistine territory. Maybe it is. Um, but either way, Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, by the way, when you get there, you're going to meet a group of prophets. A group of prophets? Samuel, I thought you're the prophet of God. <coughs> Samuel doesn't delegitimize these people and go, oh, they're fakes. They're legitimate prophets coming down from the high place with tambourine, flute, lyre before them. They're prophesying. And that includes musically. So their instruments are part of their prophesying. It's a musical form of prophecy. It's declaring through music, seemingly, um, the word of the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Then you scroll down to verse 10 and this happens. He gets to Gibeah. The spirit of God comes upon him. A group of prophets meet him, right? There's a group of prophets what are they doing? Who's, whose charge are they under? What, what's their purpose? Why are they in that territory? We don't know. But either way, he prophesies among them. They are known to prophesy, um, including the musical instruments they have. It seems to be a musical form of declaration of God's word. And Saul joins them. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. And when all who knew him saw how he prophesied, watch what they say. The people said, what's come over him? Is he also among the prophets. So at the time of Samuel, there is an established order of what they refer to as the prophets. They are known uh, individuals who are a part of a class, a rank, a guild, an order where they are part of uh, declaring the word of the Lord. And they're not fake. They're not less than, they're not delegitimized. 
They're genuine prophets. So where did they come from? How did this arise? Not really sure. Okay. We'll jump down to 1 Samuel chapter 19. <clears throat> Give me one second. Just going to blow my nose real fast. Uh, just a minute and 28 seconds. Be right back. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Boom, five, eight. Zero. All right, we're back. First Samuel chapter 19. We have the sons of the prophets again. Nine chapters later. Okay, Saul's the king. He's chasing David because he's a jerk. Not because David's a jerk, but Saul's a jerk. David fled, escaped, came to Samuel at Ramah. Told him all that Saul had done. <clears throat> and he went, um, he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. It was told Samuel, hey, David's at Naoth and Ramah. Saul sends messengers when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying. And this is in Naoth, in Ramah. Not in the same location that we saw Saul go to in the beginning. It's a different location. There's a company of prophets. Samuel standing his head over them. The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. Did you see that? Samuel standing as head over them. What does that mean? Well, Samuel, as an established prophet, that doesn't mean they're not established, but as a real, 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 like, God has not allowed Samuel's words to fall to the ground at all. He's over them. What does that mean? What is he over them doing? Uh, what kind of authority does he have over them? Does he have over them like Elisha had over the sons of the prophets in 2 Kings or 1 Kings? Well, what does that mean? <clears throat> Hopefully, we're starting to build a little bit of a mosaic here, and we're starting to piece this together. This isn't a, like a, like a, like a one-time thing. This isn't like a, a one-time occurrence where it's like, well, it's an isolated experience, buddy. You're building a lot out of nothing. I'm not building a lot out of nothing. I'm building a lot out of a lot. Samuel's standing as head over these prophets who are prophesying. Spirit of God comes upon the messengers, and they also prophesy. When it was told to Saul, which, by the way, uh, for those that are like, you know... Um, I don't know what you do with your theology here, but there are messengers sent from Saul. Uh, it doesn't say they're true believers in, in the Lord God of Israel. It doesn't say they're not. But either way, they're just messengers and they prophesy. 
What do you do with that? What if they're unbelievers? Like in terms of like, they're with Saul, trying to kill David, in living in rebellion and disobedience against the God of Israel. They're not following his ways. They're kind of with, you know, that side of people in Israel that aren't really following the Lord God. What if they're a part of that and they're prophesying? What do you do with that? I don't really know. When it was told Saul, I, I'll be honest, I know you want answers. I'll tell you when I don't have an answer. Uh, when it was told, Saul sent other messengers and they prophesied. The third time, though, um, he sends more messengers and then he himself went. Okay, And here we see um, the sons of the prophets under the authority over, of Samuel. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. What is he doing uh, in authority over them? Hopefully we can figure that out as we move on. Okay. <clears throat> 1 Kings 18. I know this is boring to some people, but whenever you have a theology and you believe something, you should really make sure that you have biblical support for that claim or that conclusion you have. And so all I'm trying to do is load you up with a theology and a and biblical support that says, yeah, there are sons of the prophets under more recognized, established prophets and seems to be in a and their relationship is a, a somewhat of a training capacity and a teaching, you know, the, the, I don't know who's at my door right now. Probably my little girl, Layla Faith. Is that you? <clears throat> you just hear little knuckles banging on the door. Could be my dog. First Kings 18. Ahab calls Obadiah who is over the household. Um, <clears throat> Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Obadiah is a God fearer. Jezebel actually cut off the prophets of the Lord. So by the time we get to Ahab ruling in Samaria, uh, by the time we get to, um, <clears throat> you know, him having Jezebel as one of his wives, seemingly the main wife, who's like the head honcho, um, there are prophets of the Lord who have been cut off by Jezebel. Okay. Because she apparently sees them as a threat to the idolatry she's trying to promote. She's trying to get people to worship Baal. They have their own prophets of Baal. They're fake, obviously. But you have the prophets of the Lord. If they were not a legitimate threat, and if they were not real, and if they were not truly of God, Jezebel wouldn't waste her time cutting them off. So, whoever these prophets of the Lord are, they are at least a threat to idolatry and false gods. Otherwise, Jezebel would have let them stand. You guys are just fake prophets anyway. You don't do anything. Well, apparently they do something of value and they have something, some role of significance that she needs to get rid of them. <clears throat> okay. And then it says that Obadiah actually took a hundred of the prophets. This is hopefully going to give you more of a numerical visual for how many prophets we're talking about. Okay. If Jezebel's already cut off a butt ton and Obadiah has hidden a hundred, 50 in one cave <clears throat> and 50 in another. How many prophets, like legitimate, real, genuine prophets of the Lord are there? You and I read the Old Testament and we go, oh, the only prophets throughout Israel's history, Moses, Samuel, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Malachi, Elisha. And the only ones we know of are the ones that played a hand in actually uh, putting pen to paper and recording scripture. There are lots of other legitimate prophets who don't get the kind of airtime or the biblical page space that other prophets do, whether they're minor or major prophets. Okay. 
And so even when you think of the role of prophet, priest, and king, priests were trained up to do their duties. They were trained up to do their service in the temple. They were trained up to teach the law to the people so they know Torah. Kings, kings were raised up and trained. They had people helping them. Uh, I wonder why we remove prophet from that trifold, tri that kind of trifecta office, and we go, well, prophets, they don't need training. Um, it's just interesting. It's just interesting. It doesn't mean it legitimizes my claim. It just, <clears throat> it's interesting why we would choose to say, yeah, but prophets, no. Priests, kings, yeah, but not prophets. Um, let me take you to 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 35, okay? And I hope now I'm not necessarily... I don't think I've proven yet that there's biblical support for spending time on, in conferences, in classes, in workshops, training prophets. I, have, I don't think I've proven that yet. I haven't made a case for that. But at least, okay, and if someone says, well, that's Old Testament, I would, I would ask you if prophets still continue in the new and if, um, and if um, prophecy has ceased, or if, if it's continued, rather, pause. If prophecy has continued, even with the establishment of the New Testament, and if the prophetic role is still there, show me your biblical evidence for the fact that while Old Testament prophets were trained, New Testament ones aren't. I don't think you can give me that. Um, because you have John the Baptist having followers, rabbis, Jesus. It's typical to uh, be a part of a certain school of thinking in terms of rabbis. And yes, those are teachers, um, but I wonder why would we not hold prophecy to the same standard and say, well, that, we're going to treat that differently. Certain men of the sons of, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, okay? So we have a man who received a command from God, a, a prophetic word from God himself. And he tells one of his fellows, hey, strike me. <clears throat> but the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And guess what? That word comes to pass. He's a legitimate prophet. As soon as he departed, okay, <clears throat> a lion met him, struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me. And the man struck him, which by the way, what a, can we pause? What a very weird prophetic word to receive from God. Is this a legitimate word that this man, a prophet, received from God? It seems to be. Not only did his prophetic word come true, right? But this is about to be a sign against Ahab. So this man receives a word from God. Hey, go tell one of your fellows to actually like strike you and injure you. Whoa. What do you do with that in your theology? I don't necessarily think we build something out of it, but it's there. God did tell a man. A prophet, as an example against King Ahab, as judgment, hey, find a fellow man to strike you. It's going to serve as a symbolic image of Ahab's impending destruction. Then he found another man and said, strike me. The man struck him and wounded him. Okay, so this is a legitimate wounding. It didn't mean he'd like, give me a paper cut. I don't know what it was. He didn't like give him a, uh, an Indian burn. He's like, yeah, yes, this is what God told me to do. It hurts so bad. So the prophet departed, waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. So that prophet, now injured, okay, is sitting on the side, waiting for the king Ahab to come by. 
He's disguised with a bandage. As the king passed, he cried out to the king, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If he's, if he's, if he's missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said, Well, so shall your judgment be. You've decided it. Then he hurried, the, pro the prophet takes the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Watch this. He has a reputation. He's not on par with Samuel. He's not on par with Moses. He's not on par with Elisha or Elijah. But guess what? He has a reputation at least with the king that he's among one of the prophets. Right here at the very top. He's a part of that group, that rank, that class that we refer to as the sons of the prophets. He belongs to them. He has a reputation. He's a legitimate prophet. He speaks a word. And guess what? Okay. He says, thus says the Lord to you, Ahab, you let go out of your hand the man that God devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. King of Israel gets sad. Oh, boo-hoo, woe is me, I may have. And he leaves and goes home to cry to his mommy. Okay. But the point is, here we have coming out of the woodworks, not Elijah, because Elijah's the one who's prophetically kind of, uh, you might say, in charge during the time of Ahab. He has the biggest airtime, Elijah does. Out of the woodworks, one of the sons of the prophets, you and I think, well, a nobody. Apparently, he's a somebody. God chooses him to go and speak a word against the king of Israel that he's going to die. And he's just among the sons of the prophets. So apparently, these sons of the prophets aren't, um, I wouldn't, they're not uh, unprophetic. They are prophetically gifted. They're legitimate. They legitimately hear from God. As you would if you were Elijah or Elisha or Samuel. And they're the sons of the prophets. You're starting to get a, a picture. They're under the authority of one. They're a part of a group. They're commissioned by God at times, randomly, sporadically, sent out of the woodworks. Go bring a word, right? Um, they're found not in one location, but in many locations. Okay, so what, what do you do with this? They're under the charge and live with supposedly a more mature, seasoned prophet. Um, we're starting to build a picture, aren't we? 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, this is a longer passage. It says the sons, well, I'll say this, Elisha um, is about to watch Elijah be taken up in a whirlwind on a chariots of fire. So Elisha knows he's about to lose his master. Look at the relationship between Elisha and Elijah. That will give you a picture of what I believe is the relationship between the sons of the prophets and whoever has charge over them, whoever has prophetic charge. Look at Elijah and Elisha. That relationship will give you a, a, a better idea. So the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven. <coughs> They're on their way from Gilgal. Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Where are they going? Bethel. Elisha, I feel like a kindergarten teacher, but you, you, have to, you can't miss this. Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elisha is attached to Elijah. 
He'll call him his father, like in terms of prophetically. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel. Where are these sons of the prophets? Well, they're not in previous locations that we've seen. Now they're in Bethel. And they come out to Elisha. Guess what they know? <clears throat> Guess what God has shown these sons of the prophets? Well, he's shown them this. Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Stop, be quiet. Shut it. I don't need you to remind me. Why would God tell, like if Elisha already knew, and if Elijah already knew, what's the point in God informing the sons of the prophets of what they already know? Well, that seems to be reaffirming and confirming. Not that God needs to confirm what he's already said to Elisha and Elijah, but it seems to be this, yeah, the sons of the prophets know that Elijah is going to be taken away. I don't know necessarily why. I don't know necessarily why God would just reveal it to them. Um, it's part of the plan. But Elijah said to him, Elisha, so now Elijah, who's about to be taken up, looks at Elisha and goes, hey, I'm about to go to Jericho. You stay here. Elisha says the same thing. No way, not leaving you, bro. So they go to Jericho. Guess who comes out of Jericho? Sons of the prophets. Where are they? They're in Jericho. Now, Elijah, or Elijah and Elisha, they go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and eventually to the wilderness. That's the reverse journey of Israel when Joshua led them into the promised land. That's the reverse order. They went wilderness, they went Jericho, plowed through those bozos, found themselves in Bethel, and then Gilgal <clears throat> is where... I know Marcus is going to correct my pronunciation. I'm going to pronounce it in the English way for the sake of the English listeners who don't know Hebrew. Okay. The sons of the prophets who were in Bethel also come out. Now we get the sons of the prophets in Jericho coming to Elisha and Elijah. And he goes, they say the same thing. They say the same thing. Do you, not, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? So... This is not just, hey, God's taking Elijah away from you. But Elijah's being taken away from over you. The prophetic authority that Elijah has on Elisha as being over him, as established by God, as the master. Because remember, God said, Elijah, go find Elisha. I've picked him to be the next prophet. Elijah finds him. Elisha leaves the oxen, kind of sacrifices them, and then follows Elijah. So during this whole time, Elijah has been the master, the one over, caring for, training up, developing Elisha for the, to be the next prophet. That's the role. And so they know for Elijah to leave is not just to depart, but that <clears throat> you might say covering authority over Elisha is about to be lifted because now he's going to take the place of Elijah. Okay? So he says, keep quiet. I know Elijah's leaving. Stop reminding me. Elijah said, hey, I'm about to go to the Jordan now. Okay, so now they're going out into the wilderness, um, River Jordan. And Elisha says the same thing. Not leaving you, bro. Heck no. The two of them leave. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at a distance from them. Where are they? Well, these sons of the prophets are by the Jordan. Well, they probably followed them from Bethel. Probably followed them from Jericho. It doesn't say that. It just says that they're standing by the Jordan. Even if they did come from Bethel, even if they did come from Jericho, doesn't change the fact 
that you have sons or ranks, different prophets who are a part of the actual class and order, all distributed across Israel. We don't know how far across, um, but they are distributed. So Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water, and the water was parted. And guess what's going to happen? Elijah's about to be taken up from Elisha. Okay? And then when they cross, Elijah says, Hey, what do you want me to do for you before I leave? Elisha goes, Please give me a double portion of your spirit. This is why John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, but if you see me as I'm being taken away, it'll be done for you. Okay? So there's this, hey, if you're committed, if you're loyal, if you're there when I leave, sure. And as they still went on and talked, the chariots of fire, like you see on a Sunday morning, horses of fire separated the two of them. Elijah went up and Elisha's still there. Look what he cries out. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now what Elisha calls Elijah is his father. Eh, you know what? Jesus does say don't call anyone father in the New Testament. But here we have Elisha. I don't think to contradict what's happening here. But to talk, to speak to the new covenant that we find ourselves in. Okay. Either way, the way we function now in the new covenant by the spirit of God. Very different than when you have the, um, the spirit coming upon certain individuals. Some permanently throughout their life in the Old Testament. Others temporarily. Um. So Elisha saw it, and he goes, My father, my father, chariots of Israel. <clears throat> he saw him no more. Watch what happens. He took hold of his own clothes, tore them in pieces uh, to mourn. And he took up the cloak of Elisha that fell, and he went back, stood on the bank of the Jordan. This would be an interesting scenario. He's looking at the cloak of Elijah going, Let's try this bad boy out. Then he struck the water and goes, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He struck the water, it parts. So you're supposed to think Joshua, you're supposed to think Moses, you're supposed to think crossing over into Israel, a new Elijah, okay? A new prophetic voice that has been established, has been trained up and developed under the authority of Elijah himself. Elisha has entered a new mode, right? He's got a new form. The point is, to bring up all this, is it's giving you a picture for what it looks like for the school of the prophets, the sons of the prophets, to be under an authority figure or a master or a father, someone who is uh, seemingly training them up to kind of pick up the broken pieces when they leave. Now you might say, well, Elijah and Elisha's relationship was uniquely different. Um, I, I would say, why? Why is that uniquely different? Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any reason why the relationship between Elijah and Elisha um, is fundamentally, uniquely different in a one-time, exclusive, isolated scenario um, that the sons of the prophets, are. That's, that's a different thing. Elisha is being trained up by Elisha. Sons of the prophets are being trained up. You see them under Samuel. You see them under um, Elisha after this. So the question becomes, what are they being trained up for if indeed it's different than what Elisha was being trained up for? Maybe they're not being trained up to be the prophetic voice. And I don't think there ever is like the prophetic voice because apparently God is working like primarily and mostly through like a couple prophetic voices throughout this, the uh, Israelite history. But there's also these supplementary prophets that come out of the woodworks and you and I go, why? 
Why not just work with Elijah? Why not just make him the established prophet? Why not just work with Samuel? Make him the established prophet. Why not just work with Moses? Why are there all these supplementary prophetic voices that still hear from God? Why do that? Because God partners with lots of people. It's not just about any one person or any couple people. It's God is doing a lot behind the scenes in different areas that you and I don't see. We get so one-dimensional. We're like, well, God's working here. Actually, go to the book of Numbers. You'll see God working with Israel, and you're like, it's all about Israel, all about Israel, forget the Gentiles. Then, boom, the camera zooms, uh, pans over, and you see this guy named Balaam. And you're like, Balaam's a Gentile. Why is he a seer? Why is he hearing from God? Well, apparently God is also working over there <clears throat> in Moab, okay? So, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. There's a wife of one of the sons of the prophets. So we know that the sons of the prophets are established. They have a reputation. Uh, they're picked by God at certain times to give prophetic words, supplementary to like the, 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 the major prophets, you might say. Um, they're, they're, they're under the authority of one of those more established major pro prophetic voices. Um, and they're taught. I don't know what they're taught to do. I don't know what they're trained to do. I don't know why they're following. Like for instance, why are the sons of the prophets under the authority of Elisha? What are they being, what are they sticking around for? What are they learning? What are they developing? And if not the prophetic, why are they called the sons of the prophets as if to be their main title? What do you think that emphasizes? <laughs> so I think it's specifically they're being trained up as prophets. And if that's the case, there's your biblical precedence for prophecy or the prophetic role to be developed and to be trained up in, just like any other of the fivefold gifts we see in Ephesians 4. Don't treat prophecy differently. I, I don't know why we would. So, there's a wife of one of the sons of the prophets, cries to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know your servant feared the Lord. You know? Elisha knew this guy? Seems to be. Seems to at least know him well enough that he truly feared the Lord, and Elisha can vouch for that. But the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. And Elisha says, what do you want me to do for you? Tell me what you have in your house. And she said, well, I just have a jar of oil. We're about to see a miracle break open. But I don't want to get too down, okay? The point is that Elisha steps in on behalf of this deceased son of the prophets, um, who's a part of the class, the rank, the order of prophets. Elisha knows him. Elisha knows he fears God, he has a reputation, and he helps his wife and his children out. <clears throat> so these aren't just some random schmucks who are like, ah, oh, we don't know who they are, we don't know where they come from, we don't know what they do. No, we know what they do. We know how God uses them periodically. Uh, we, we don't know why. We don't know why God supplements the major prophets, you might say, with these kind of side hustle guys, but they're still prophetic. They still hear from God. They're being trained up under the authority of someone. And Elisha knows them. Um, they have a reputation. They're trustworthy. Are there fake prophets? For sure. But I don't think these are it. Otherwise, the text would tell us these are fake. They're not real. You're not real. Doesn't say that. <clears throat> Second Kings 4.38. Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets, here we go again, are sitting before him, he said to his servant, so there's a distinction between his servant, I think it's Gehazi, or that's Elijah's, 
I think it's Elisha's servant is Gehazi, Gehazi. Either way, he has a servant, and that servant is distinguished from the sons of the prophets. So I don't believe the sons of the prophets were just like his secretaries, handling his stuff only, and they only do his bidding and make his life easier. There's a servant here that's distinguished from the sons of the prophets. He could be among them. Okay, that's, that's fine. But there's still a distinction. He said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Okay, so it doesn't seem to be that this servant is a part of the sons of the prophets. Elisha has a servant. Elisha has a servant to tend to these things, to cook, to help, to prepare, to provide, to whatever he's doing to make Elisha's life easier. Okay, he has a servant. The sons of the prophets don't seem to be functioning in that we do your bidding kind of capacity. So one of them went out into the field to gather herbs. Okay. Uh, uh, found a wild vine gathered from it. Uh, his lap full of wild gourds came and cut them into the pot of the stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. While they were eating, they cried out, man of God, there's death in the pot. Which is not just like, hey, this meal sucks. It's this is actually deadly. You gave us bleach. <clears throat> he said, then bring flour. Which, by the way, this is the same Elijah that's like, ah, oh, bummer. Your axe head sank to the bottom of the, of, the, of the Jordan. Give me a stick. Go, stick. Ah, and it brings up the axe head. This is the same Elisha. This time he's like, hmm, poisonous stew. Anyone have flour? He threw it into the pot. Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal, Shalisha. It sounds like a, like a tune, Shalisha, Shalisha. Bring in the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. Elisha said, give to the man that they may eat. But his servant said, okay, but his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So question, how many sons of the prophets are under the authority of Elisha. Well, the men there are the sons of the prophets. It seems to be a hundred of them. There's a lot. This is not some tiny little rinky-dink startup school where we're like, let's see if we can get people interested in prophecy. Elisha, I'll go pass out flyers. I'll handle the spreadsheets. That's not what's happening. This is a big ordeal. So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Here we have that multiplication miracle that Jesus reciprocates in a bigger manner. So he said it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So, whoa, sons of the prophets, renowned, reputation, trained up, received prophetic words, used by God for big, big things, like telling the king he's going to die. That's not like telling a local peasant, hey, don't worry, you'll have enough food today. This is going to the king of Israel and saying, you're going to die. That's a big responsibility. Why give it to a son of the prophet? There's lots of these. They're sp they're, they seem to be dispersed throughout Israel. Okay. Which then the question becomes, how many other kind of seasoned, mature prophets are there to be over these groups in different locations? Are, are they required to be under the authority of some. It seems to be. It seems to be. Um, 2 Kings 5.22 <clears throat> uh, 
Okay. Gehazi and Naaman. Remember Naaman, a Syrian uh, military leader? He's the captain of the Syrian army, but he has leprosy. Bummer. So, um, Naaman, I by myself. Okay. So Naaman has just gotten healed. I forgot where I was in this story. Naaman has just been healed of his leprosy by dipping in the Jordan, I believe, seven times. And he came to Elijah, Elisha and goes, it worked. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then he said, when Naaman had gone from him, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. So I guess I was right. Maybe Elisha had a different servant prior to this. But either way, Gehazi is the servant now of Elisha. And he, and he runs, see, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. So, so Naaman goes, I have gifts. And Elijah goes, eh. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. Okay. So Gehazi follows Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down and goes, is, is everything okay? And he goes, yeah, my master sent me to say, um, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. But he's lying. He's lying. But he can get away with it because that's actually like um, a believable thing. Like Gehazi's lying using something that's actually believable. That the sons of the prophets would come down from the hill country of Ephraim to stay with Elisha. Is that a normative thing? That they would come and stay with Elisha? Possibly. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Gehazi's lying. And Naaman said, oh sure, take what you need. They carried them before Gehazi. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand, put them in his house. Seems like Gehazi's hiding something. He went in, stood before his master, and Elisha said, where have you been? Uh, nowhere. But he said, didn't my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments and all this stuff? The leprosy of Naaman is going to cling to you now, Gehazi. Bummer. The point is, okay, even for Naaman, a Syrian uh, military leader, right? he's the commander of Syria's army. Even he's aware of how, how at least the, the prophetic seems to work. That there are sons of prophets who will periodically come and, and stay with uh, a, a well-known, more renowned prophet. Um, let me take you to 2 Kings 9.1. I got a few more and then we're done, okay? I think what is true of uh, the way prophecy functions in this capacity has to be true of how it functions in New Testament capacity. Um, otherwise, you have to show me where the biblical precedent is for saying that it, it's not going to. Like if, if the gift of prophecy, if prophets had to be developed and trained, whatever that entailed, it could entail a lot, and we'll talk about that, okay? <clears throat> but um, I think when it comes to it, think of everything that would surround prophecy or the life of a prophet. Uh, they would uh, recognize the voice of God. They would discern and test whether a word or a vision is truly from God, maybe testing other prophets. They would have a relationship with God, which assumes prayer, which assumes that they're learning Torah, which assumes that they're versed and educated in the scriptures that they had in the time. 
In other words, relationship with God seems to encompass whatever role as prophet or gift of prophecy that they have. It's mainly relationship with God is what makes that effective. Whatever gift or role they have. So 2 Kings 9.1, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said, Hey, tie your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand. Go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. Go in, okay, take the flask, anoint him as king over Israel. The young man, the servant of the prophet, did went to Ramoth Gilead. So look at this. Remember how I said there was a servant who was distinguished from the rest of the sons of the prophets? Sons of the prophets and um, uh, servants can still overlap. So the servant that you know was in charge of the stew was distinguished from the sons of the prophets. That doesn't mean the sons of the prophets had absolutely no serving capacity. So if I misspoke, forgive me, if I made a mistake and, and made it seem like that a, uh, a, a son of the prophet would have no serving capacity. Okay, I'm just saying they're not like uh, the, air, the, the just do everything that I say and clean my toes and, and wash my clothes. That might be a part of it sometimes. But it seems like there's, there's more than that. There's more than that. Like this guy, this son of the prophet is on an errand as a servant of Elisha. Guess what he gets to do? No small task. He's not looking for bread to bring back to the fam. He's anointing the next king of Israel. That's reserved for like important people. Samuel anoints the king of Israel twice, right? So if you're a prophet anointing the king of Israel, that's a big deal. And he ends up going. He's a son of the prophets. He doesn't, he doesn't even have a name that we know of. He has a name, but we don't give him a name, a name in the scripture because he's just the son of the prophets. Like that's a recognized office and position like when you say I work in government and there's definitely different you know subcategories within that but it's like oh I, I recognize what that entails usually that's the same idea when you hear son of the prophet you go, okay I know what you mean like you have a reputation son of the prophets we know what you guys do what that is is becoming more clear it's becoming more clear um 1 Kings 20, verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. We read that. Okay, so now I can take you to verse. This is interesting, okay, and then we're done. This is interesting. You have King Ahab, who has about 400 prophets gathered, okay? I believe Jezebel is still alive. Second Kings 9. Okay, so she ain't dying for another chapter. Bummer. She's still alive, okay? The king of Israel is about to go to war. He invited Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, to come in war with him, okay? And Jehoshaphat goes, Ah, before we do, can you inquire for the word of the Lord first? So there's this assumed thing to do. Jehoshaphat seems to be like a, a more, th you know, godly man where he's like yeah let's actually see what god wants before we assume so okay the king of israel gathers the prophets how many of them 400 now these are not sons of the prophets okay these are king ahab's specific uh prophets of his courtroom 
and like his personal prophets. And you're about to find out that these prophets are not legitimate. They are fake. Okay. They're ear tickling, lying, deceitful prophets that do not hear from the Lord. But there's a man named Micaiah who does. So he goes, shall I go to battle? They all, all 400 go, yeah, go with God is with you, my guy. Go, Ahab, go. Go, Ahab, go. Joseph goes, mm, I don't know, like 400 are in agreement. Is there another prophet we can inquire? The king of Israel goes, yeah, unfortunately, there is one man we can inquire of, Micaiah. I hate Micaiah. He literally says, I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He never, in other words, he never tells me what I want to hear. Guess what the other 400 prophets are doing? Telling Ahab what he wants to hear. These are fake. These are not legitimate sons of the prophets. That's why they're not called sons of the prophets. Because sons of the prophets are actual, genuine people that hear from the, from the Lord. These people don't. Okay? But Ahab has created a counterfeit of that. He has his own prophets. They have their own prophets of Baal, too. Joseph says, no, don't, don't be so hard on the guy. <clears throat> the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, hey, bring Micaiah. And we'll get to this specific portion when we get to visions and dreams. But essentially, Micaiah comes... And look, all the prophets are prophesying before Ahab. This guy named Zedekiah goes, Thus says the Lord. You're lying, Zedekiah. You big fat liar. Will these, with these, these horns of iron, you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. Nope, not going to happen. Not from God. You're lying. All the prophets prophesied so. Micaiah is going to come in and be like, Actually, Ahab, you're going to die. The army's going to be dispersed. You're going to lose. Thus says the Lord. And Ahab's going to go, Jehoshaphat, I told you he never says anything nice. He's a weenie. But you know what? Micaiah's saying the truth. Micaiah tells the truth. Now these prophets seem to be, again, like a counterfeit, a fake version of what the sons of the prophets are to be. I mean, Ahab has 400 lying, false prophets telling him what he wants to hear. And the only one who tells him the truth is locked up. So, let me take it to Ezra chapter 5. Th this might be a little something. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah are, are prophesying to the Jews who are building the temple, right? Strengthening their hands with Zerubbabel and Joshua, <clears throat> the son of Josedach, arose, and they're rebuilding the house of God. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now you can say, oh, that's just Zechariah and Haggai. Like he already noted that Haggai and Zechariah are there prophesying. That's fine. That's fine. But, but, that seems a little redundant to say Haggai and Zechariah prophesied, strengthened their hands, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Well, you just said that. You just said that. So could these prophets of God be other prophets that are unnamed but they're playing a supporting, encouraging, edifying role to strengthen the hands of the Israelites as they build the temple. Possibly. Okay. The point is, the reason I show you all of this is to say 
my answer to the question, can the gift of prophecy be trained and developed? I'm not asking, can someone be given the gift through education and training and development? And if you go to enough seminars, God will give you the gift. Not what I'm saying. This is not about receiving the gift. This is about already having the gift of the Spirit, prophecy, and can that be, does that need to be developed, trained, strengthened, um, experienced, matured? Does it? Well, when I read about the sons of the prophets who come under more authoritative, recognized, uh, more seasoned prophets like Elijah and Samuel and Elisha, okay, and that they're dispersed all throughout the land, um, and, you know, they're in different locations and, and at times they're sent by God to do big things and they hear from God and they, they live with their master or their father who's over them prophetically. Um, you, you wonder, well, what are they doing under them? It seems to be they're being developed. That's, that's the only thing I can gather from all these texts is that these sons of the prophets exist as a class, as a rank, as an order to be developed and trained under like seasoned prophets to actually be voices of the Lord to the people of Israel. Um, and why they're, what specifically, what minute details are being trained, what they're focusing on, possibly when I read scripture, if discernment is trained, if our ability to recognize the voice of the Lord is trained, if Jeremiah and Samuel grow in their ability to recognize and hear the voice of God, that at least seems to be part of it. Like when you have the gift of prophecy, that doesn't mean, hey, now that Charles has the gift of prophecy, he'll always recognize when God speaks. He'll never miss a word. He'll always go, that's God, that's not. There's no need to grow in discernment. Well, that would fly in the face of Romans 12, that we need our minds to be renewed, to know what is good. That flies in the face of Hebrews 5, that our discernment needs to be trained. Because now you're saying, well, that doesn't apply to prophets. Well, that doesn't apply to, apply to people with the gift of prophecy. There's no biblical text that would give us reason to think that. So do I believe that if, I do believe the gift of prophecy is still active. I do believe that per, the prophetic role is still active. Is it possibly to a, is it toned down a bit? Has God kind of turned down the volume? Maybe. Are there degrees of, of heightened prophetic words and the need for a prophetic voice throughout human history? Sure, they vary in degrees. Does that mean they don't exist at all anymore? No, just because the volume's turned down doesn't mean it's not playing at all, right? So I believe the prophetic voice is still active. I believe the gift of prophecy is still active. The question then becomes again, is that something that needs to be developed? And I think yes. I don't think God ever gives a gift in a, a perfect, complete, you don't need to do anything with it kind of form. Because even the most gifted individuals, I'm not trying to make this just an earthly thing because there is a distinct difference between a spiritual gift and a physical skill. But let's just take a physical skill per, per se, okay? Let's just say I'm training basketball because I played basketball my whole life. Um, let's just say I'm gifted. Even the most gifted individuals like Steph Curry, they still need to train and develop in other areas that directly influence what they've been gifted in. So he might be gifted naturally to be good at basketball. It comes easy to him. It comes natural. It's just something he's gifted to do. That doesn't mean he doesn't have to train. That doesn't mean he actually has to 
<clears throat> you know, not practice dribbling and not practice the elementary basics and the fundamentals of basketball. In fact, he needs to because this is what we think. Biblically, if God's going give to give a gift, there's going to be no effort on my end to, to supplement that. Like he's going to give it in a perfect form. When God gives gifts, okay, he gives you something that you are naturally uh, wired and designed to do easier and more effectively than other people. That doesn't mean that now there's no responsibility on your end to develop that. Otherwise, again, the question becomes, why do we have seminaries? Why do we have classes and workshops and conferences for training shepherds to shepherd better? Why are we teaching people how to exegete a text and preach and teach the word of God and, and come up with an outline, a three-point outline? Here's the main point. Here's the introduction. Here's what's going to come under the main points. Why are we teaching people that, right? If God's going to give the gift of teaching and preaching and shepherding or evangelizing, they should know how to do it completely without any training, without any development. And you and I go, well, that's not true. Okay, so why do we hold prophecy to a different standard? Isn't that, prophecy is just as much of a spiritual gift as teaching, as preaching, as evangelizing. These aren't varying degrees of spirituality where it's like, well, you know, you're really spiritual if you can prophetically. When I teach the word of God, when I evangelize, when I shepherd the people of God, that's just as much, you know, possible because of Jesus alone as prophecy is. I need God just as much as I need him to prophesy. Why do we put these things in categories where you really need God to prophesy? That's supernatural. That's spiritual. And shepherding people with the love of Christ isn't. And communicating biblical truth in a way that's simplified and understandable. That doesn't require the work of the Spirit. Do you see how silly it is? To say that, yeah, we can train teachers. We can train shepherds. We can train evangelists. But we don't train prophets. They should have the gift as it is. And that's it. Really? That's just illogical, unreasonable. So I think I've made my case. Lovingly, I've made my case. Um, <gasps> that there's just a disconnect, man. There's inconsistency on the part of many cessationist brothers and sisters of mine. They don't really stop to think these things through. Because they've been taught something. They've been taught to read scripture a certain way. Um... And they're reading it through the lens of their favorite teacher or their seminary or their master's college or whatever it is. And they're not really go thinking for themselves. They're thinking the way they were taught to think. So this is me lovingly saying, yes, the gift of prophecy can be developed and trained. What that looks like, we have equal evidence and equal instruction on that as we do for compiling scripture into a sermon outline and delivering that just as much evidence so if you can teach exegeting a text if you can teach preaching and outlining a sermon if you can teach shepherding people and and teach people how to do that better and evangelizing if you can teach that you can teach you can teach and develop the gift of prophecy that doesn't mean if i don't have the gift of prophecy you can give it to me through teaching it already has to be present as with any gift I'm not going to teach someone to teach the Bible who is not called to be a teacher of the Bible and a shepherd, right? Um, there's going to be different degrees of teaching where it's like, yeah, you can, you can disciple, you can tell people what a text says, but from a pulpit, God isn't gifted or called you to do that maybe. Maybe, maybe periodically, 
but you're not going to put all your eggs in that basket. You're going to develop what is natural and then along the way also work on what isn't natural because you want to have, you know, um, a balanced Christianity, you might say. Okay. So if you guys didn't already know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com to find out and discover all the free resources we have. Okay. Moved my family from California to Florida a year ago to start this ministry in faith. Here we are. We have a ton of free resources, free online Bible study classes, free devotional studies, free Bible study worksheets, free Bible study workshops. Um, we have a free online church you can join right now. Um, I have a book. It's not free. It costs money to publish. So it's called Fruitful. You can get a copy um, on Amazon or on my website. It'll teach you the essential basics um, to living the most, I think the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. So for people that are like, I want to live the fullest Christian life, this book will give you the very basics, your position in Christ, the process you go through, and then the purpose for which you exist, all framed up by the gospel. And then if you want to give to this ministry, we're moving people towards Jesus as best as we can, teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And so if you want to give, you can give through debit or credit right here, just straight from your bank. You can give a check, send a mail, uh, mail in a check. You can give through PayPal, through Cash App, through Venmo. Uh, you can become a monthly patron. And when you support us through Patreon every month, you get exclusive access to a bunch of benefits. And if you get some church merch, which you can see, um, I didn't link it in this video. I should have. I'll do that after this. You can get a ton of the stuff that we have. Mugs, shirts, wear Jesus on your body, represent him wherever you go. So there's a lot of ways to support what God is doing here. You can pray with us, join the online church, get active, use your gifts to build up the body. And uh, tomorrow or Friday, I don't think I'm going live tomorrow. I'll probably go live Friday because I need to give my voice a rest. But Friday, we will talk um, more about prophecy, okay? So uh, I think I've made at least somewhat of a case. Hi, Leandra. Good to see you, sister. And I think that is it for today, guys. Thanks for jumping on um, and listening. If you have not already, go watch the last two episodes on prophecy. It's very important because these I've already given the foundational ideas to get to where we are today. If you don't have the foundational ideas, you're not working with the same premise as I am. And so you can't arrive at the same conclusions. So you guys go watch those. I'll link them in the description below. Um, and I'll see you guys Friday. Love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And that's it.